This ePulmonology Review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Therapy for severe asthma has experienced a revolutionary advancement in the past decade. Biologic therapies, which consist of monoclonal antibodies, have shown remarkable efficacy in reducing asthma exacerbations. Asthma management, the current state of the art in early 2022. Welcome to ePulmonology Review. What is the current state-of-the-art of asthma management? Two important guidelines have recently been updated, but the recommendations are non-congruent. Which advice is most relevant? When should a biologic therapy be considered, and which agent is most appropriate for which patient? What does the evidence say? That's what we're here to talk about today with our guest, Dr. Ashraf Fazi from the Division of Pulmonology and Critical Care at Johns Hopkins University. For Dr. Fazi's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, epulmonologyreview.org, and click on the Volume 2, Issue 2 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of ePulmonology Review. Dr. Fazi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Bob. Let's start right in with our first learning objective, the differences between the NHLBI and the GINA guideline strategies for mild asthma. So take us to the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Fauzi, with a patient scenario. Sure thing. In this scenario, a 20-year-old male college student with asthma is transitioning his care from a pediatric practice to your practice. He describes his asthma as well-controlled, he has not had any exacerbation in the last three years, and denies any nighttime awakenings due to dyspnea or wheezing. He's prescribed a daily low-dose inhaled corticosteroid with as-needed short-acting beta agonist, which he needs to use no more than twice a week for dyspnea or wheezing. He confides in you, though, that he frequently forgets to take his daily inhaler, inhaled corticosteroid, and would estimate he remembers to use it about three to four days per week. The therapy this patient is on, is it guideline recommended? So while his therapy is endorsed by the guidelines, recent updates to these guidelines offer alternatives that may be more suitable for this patient. So there's more than one guideline to consider. Uh, Help us unravel this. Which guidelines are you referring to, and when were they last updated? There are two major organizations with recently updated asthma guidelines that I'm referring to. The first is the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, which updated their guidelines in 2020 for the first time since 2007. So one is the NHBLI. What's the other one? The second is a strategy report from the Global Initiative for Asthma, which is also known as GINA, which is updated annually but had a major change to their guidelines in 2019 specifically for the management of mild asthma. So these two guidelines, one updated annually, the other updated in 2020 for the first time in over a decade, what do they recommend to optimize treatment for this 20-year-old patient we're talking about? Are these guidelines in agreement? Unfortunately, the NHLBI and GINA guidelines do differ regarding management of mild asthma, but both are based on solid evidence. First off, we can all agree that this patient has mild asthma based on the patient's mild symptoms and infrequent use of his rescue inhaler, despite inconsistent use of the controller inhaler. One important point in this case is that the patient finds it hard to adhere to daily low-dose inhaled corticosteroid maintenance therapy. If we look to the updated NHLBI guidelines for direction, we could recommend that the patient uses inhaled corticosteroid on an as-needed basis, along with the short-acting beta agonist. There is good evidence for this 
from randomized control trials, which have shown that as-needed inhaled corticosteroid and short-acting beta agonists is superior to as-needed short-acting beta agonists and equivalent to maintenance inhaled corticosteroid with as-needed short-acting beta agonists. And the GINA, the GINA guidelines, what do they recommend? For this patient with mild asthma, GINA recommends as-needed low-dose inhaled corticosteroid with formoterol, which is a combination inhaled steroid and long-acting beta agonists. In my newsletter issue, I highlighted an article by Beasley and colleagues. These researchers randomized patients with mild asthma to one of three arms, either as-needed budesonide formoterol, as-needed short-acting beta agonist, or maintenance inhaled corticosteroid with as-needed short-acting beta agonist. How long was the trial? For 52 weeks. And they showed that the as-needed budesonide formoterol reduced exacerbations compared to the other two groups and improved asthma symptoms compared to as-needed short-acting beta agonist. Since this patient had trouble with adherence to maintenance inhaled corticosteroid, using the inhaled corticosteroid formoterol as needed would allow him to still benefit from the inhaled corticosteroid with at least equivalent asthma control. Formoterol. Oh, you're mentioning that a lot. Is there something special about that particular long-acting beta agonist? Yes, there is. Time to onset is shorter than salmeterol, which is another commonly available long-acting beta agonist in the U.S. Belanterol, a newer long-acting beta agonist, has slightly longer time to onset compared to formoterol, but there's no evidence yet regarding its use on an as-needed basis in mild asthma. All right, thanks. But this is still confusing. To recap, from managing mild asthma, new guidance is coming from two organizations. The recommendations were released at around the same time, but their guidelines are giving different management advice. How did that happen? This is due to the way the guidelines were created. The 2020 NHLBI guidelines involved literature reviews based on studies through the first quarter of 2017. This unfortunately did not include studies showing efficacy of inhaled corticosteroid for motorol, which were published in 2018, including the study I mentioned earlier. And as such, those studies were not incorporated into the evidence base for the NHLBI guidelines. On the other hand, the GINA guidelines have been updated yearly and include the latest evidence. Also, practically speaking, the GINA guidelines are easier to implement since there's no combination inhaled corticosteroid and short-acting beta agonist available in the United States. And therefore, if you wanted to implement the NHLBI guidelines, you would have to prescribe two different inhalers to the patient and ask them to take both of them on an as-needed basis. That clarifies things somewhat. Thank you, doctor. Let me return to our patient for a moment now, because one of the key difficulties this patient had was adhering to his asthma meds. Patient adherence to their inhaled agents. How common a problem have you found that to be in your practice? That's a great question, Bob. We see this all the time. Patients who are prescribed maintenance inhaler therapies that we ask them to take once or twice a day often have a hard time adhering to that therapy. So it's very important to elicit that from the patient and ask them how many times they use their inhaler therapy every week or how many times they miss their inhaler therapy every week or every month. Do you find that they usually respond truthfully? What's your opinion on that? As long as the question is posed in a non-threatening manner to the patient, patients are usually forthcoming with a truthful answer. Thank you for that answer, doctor, and for bringing us this case. I'd like to wrap it up by reviewing what we've been discussing as it applies to our learning objective. 
The differences between the NHLBI and the GINA or GINA guideline strategies for managing mild asthma. Dr. Fauzi, what are the most important things our listeners need to understand? First of all, the updated 2020 NHLBI guidelines differ from the GINA guidelines with regards to management of mild asthma. The NHLBI guidelines recommend as needed short-acting beta agonists as step one for mild intermittent asthma and either daily low-dose inhaled corticosteroid with as-needed short-acting beta agonists or as-needed inhaled corticosteroid and short-acting beta agonists as step two for mild persistent asthma. On the other hand, the GINA guidelines are more straightforward, recommending as-needed low-dose inhaled corticosteroid for motorol as steps one and two for mild intermittent or mild persistent asthma. There's good evidence for using either of these guidelines, specifically for as-needed inhaled corticosteroid with as-needed short-acting beta agonist or as-needed inhaled corticosteroid for motorol for well-controlled mild asthma. This is particularly useful in patients who find it difficult to adhere to maintenance inhaled corticosteroid therapy. Importantly, keep in mind, though, that for motorol, which is a fast-onset, long-acting beta agonist, must be used if choosing an as-needed inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta-agonist strategy for mild asthma. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Ashraf Fazi from Johns Hopkins in just a moment. Hi, this is Bob Busker again, taking a quick moment to thank you for listening to this ePulmonology Review podcast. If you're a past subscriber, welcome back. If you're new, thanks for checking us out. We hope you find these podcasts and the newsletters they accompany valuable to your practice, and you'll let your colleagues know about this educational resource that provides continuing education credit without charge to physicians and nurses. If you're interested in expert opinion in other diseases, you might like to sample one of our other programs. Currently, we have recently published newsletter and podcast issues on important topics in HIV and multiple sclerosis. And in the next few months, we'll be launching Volume 10 of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. All this education, accredited by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, is provided free of charge. For details, go to our website, dkbmed.com. That's Delta Kilo Bravo Med.com. And click on the disease state and topic that interests you. And if you've come to this podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or any of the other channels we're on, please review us, because the more listeners we have, the more programs we can provide. The next issue of ePulmonology Review is coming soon with expert opinion and advice on the current state-of-the-art in managing COPD. Thanks for listening. And now back to asthma and Dr. Fauzi. Welcome back to this ePulmonology Review podcast. Our guest is Dr. Ashraf Fauzi from the Division of Pulmonology and Critical Care at Johns Hopkins University. And our topic is the state-of-the-art in early 2022 for managing patients with asthma. We've been discussing mild asthma. Let's turn now to our second learning objective, the indications for biologic therapy in severe asthma and the rationale for prescribing specific biologic therapies. Uh, with that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Fozzi, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. A 61-year-old woman with long-standing asthma has had worsening asthma control and three exacerbations within the past year. She's now on high-dose inhaled corticosteroid long-acting beta agonist, and long-acting muscarinic antagonist. After an exacerbation six months ago, she's been unable to wean prednisone below 10 milligrams without exacerbating her asthma symptoms. 
She was diagnosed with osteopenia after a recent screening DEXA scan, and her primary care physician told her she will need to start insulin because of her type 2 diabetes is now poorly controlled. A recent eosinophil count on 10 milligrams of prednisone was 20 cells per microliter, but has been as high as 400 cells per microliter during the past 12 months. Her IgE levels have always been in the normal range. So long-standing asthma, and even with LABA and LAMA agents, she still needs high-dose inhaled corticosteroids plus oral steroids. And now the side effects from the steroids, they're, they're affecting her other medical problems. So just what's going on here, doctor? So chronic oral steroids have multiple adverse side effects, including hyperglycemia that can worsen diabetes control and bone loss that induces secondary osteoporosis. For this patient, it would be critical to minimize the patient's oral steroid requirement, or ideally to try to wean it completely off. She's already demonstrated that maximum inhaler therapy is insufficient to control her symptoms and prevent exacerbations, so we need to take her therapy a step further. Can we call her condition severe oral steroid-dependent asthma? Would that be correct? Yes, absolutely. This would definitely qualify as that. So as you just said, we need to take your therapy a step further. What would that step be? What other options might be available for this patient? Therapy for severe asthma has experienced a revolutionary advancement in the past decade. Biologic therapies, which consist of monoclonal antibodies against cytokines in the inflammatory pathway of asthma, have shown remarkable efficacy in reducing asthma exacerbations, improving symptoms, and reducing the dose of oral steroids needed to maintain good asthma control. There seems to be a lot of confusion around biologics. Many clinicians just kind of lump them together into a single category. Biologic therapies are biologic therapies, and they all pretty much work the same way. What's the real story, doctor? There are several biologic therapies currently FDA-approved and available which target different parts of the inflammatory pathway in asthma. There are three different therapies highlighted in my newsletter issue. Mepolizumab, which selectively inhibits eosinophils by targeting interleukin-5. Dupilumab, which is directed against the alpha subunit of the interleukin-4 receptor and targets both allergic and eosinophilic inflammation by blocking interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 signal transduction. And tezapilumab, which blocks thymectromal lymphopoietin, or TSLP, that is involved in the multiple inflammatory pathways in asthma. Dupilumab and tezapilumab work further upstream in the pathway than mepolizumab, and therefore are more appropriate for patients who do not necessarily have eosinophilic asthma, which is a requirement for use of mepolizumab. So the choice of biologic therapy should be tailored to the patient, but there is significant overlap where several biologic therapies may be appropriate for one patient. Let's go back to the 61-year-old woman you presented with her severe oral steroid-dependent asthma. If our goal is to wean her off those oral steroids that are doing so much damage, which biologic therapy do you think would be most appropriate? Generally speaking, if the patient has strong evidence for an eosinophilic phenotype of asthma, it is worthwhile to target the eosinophilic inflammation with the most specific therapy. Eosinophilic inflammation has been defined as a blood eosinophil level of at least 150 cells per microliter within the past six months, or within the past 12 months, having a blood eosinophil level at least 300 cells per microliter, or 
spewing me a cinephil proportion of at least 3%. Remember, bloody eosinophil levels will be suppressed by oral steroids. So if your patient is on oral steroids, either try to wean them off to get a bloody eosinophil level without oral steroids, or look for a prior bloody eosinophil level that was before the patient was on oral steroids. In the case of this patient, the patient had a bloody eosinophil level over 300 within the past 12 months, which is indicative of eosinophilic asthma. And I would first try mepolizumab. For patients who do not have elevated eosinophil count, dupilumab and tezepilumab have demonstrated efficacy in clinical trials when compared to placebo among patients with eosinophil counts below 300 cells per microliter and even below 150 cells per microliter. Let's paint the full picture here, doctor. Talk to us about the limitations to using these biologic therapies. All of the current biologic therapies are injectable medications, which may not be acceptable to some patients. Although there are now options for self-injection that the patient can do themselves at home. Dosing intervals are usually once monthly for most of these injectable medications. However, benralizumab, another interleukin-5 inhibitor like mepolizumab, is dosed every eight weeks after the first three months of therapy. And the side effects of these medications? What does the evidence report? Allergic reactions are a rare but serious side effect, and patients have to be monitored when receiving the first dose for most of these therapies. Increases in eosinophil counts with dupilumab that is not clinically significant have been reported. Dupilumab blocks eosinophils from entering the tissue, so in some patients, there is an increase in circulating eosinophils. Thank you, Dr. Fauzi, for bringing us this interesting case. Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective, describe the indications for biologic therapy in severe asthma, and explain the rationale for prescribing specific biologic therapies. What are the key things our listeners need to know? First of all, several biologic therapies are now available for the treatment of severe asthma. Mepolizumab, dupilumab, and tezepilumab were mentioned earlier and highlighted in the newsletter. Benralizumab was also mentioned earlier. Biologic therapies for asthma reduce exacerbations, improve symptoms, and help decrease the dose of oral corticosteroid needed to maintain asthma control, and in some cases, completely eliminate their need. Biologic therapies targeting interleukin-5, such as mepolizumab, require evidence that asthma is associated with eosinophilic inflammation, usually through elevated blood eosinophil levels. Other biologic therapies that act further upstream in the asthma inflammatory pathway, such as dupilumab and tezepilumab, have demonstrated efficacy in patients without elevated eosinophil levels. Dr. Ashraf Fawzi from the Division of Pulmonology and Critical Care at Johns Hopkins University, thank you for joining us for this ePulmonology Review Podcast. It was my pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. For ePulmonology Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at epulmonology.dkbmed.com. ePulmonology Review is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca and Viatris. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. ePulmonology Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKP Med LLC. Thank you for listening.